Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I am Nick Cheesman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Having just taken the host's chair for this New Books channel, over the coming months I'm going to take the opportunity to talk with authors who have published works in the last few years that have attracted my attention as well as with authors of recently published monographs. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with my colleague, Tiru Habakon, a fellow in the ANU's Department of Political and Social Change, on her first book, Revolution Interrupted, Farmers, Students, Law and Violence in Northern Thailand, published in 2011 by Wisconsin University Press. Modern Southeast Asian history is riven with silences about events that are within the living memories of many, but that for various reasons cannot or have not been documented and discussed openly. In Revolution Interrupted, Habakon breaks the silence around one such event, or series of events, in Thailand during the mid-1970s, namely the political struggle for enforcement of a law on rent control that resulted in the assassination of dozens of farmers' leaders and attacks on many more. The struggle occurred against the backdrop of political upheaval in a period of three years between 1973 and 1976, when Thailand passed from dictatorship to democracy and back again. Aside from breaking open the silences around many publicly known yet undiscussed events of this period, Revolution Interrupted raises compelling questions about the meaning of law and its relationship to violence in Thailand. These questions ought to weigh heavily on anyone trying to make sense of what is happening in that country today and why. The book also strongly recommends itself to scholars working on similar problems in other settings. All in all, Revolution Interrupted is a book that is both engaging and moving which is not surprising given Habakon's deep familiarity and involvement with her subject matter, as we'll now hear. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Nick Cheesman, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Till Habakon about her book, Revolution Interrupted. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Um, the, this book you, uh, you wrote... Um, uh, was published in 2011, so it's not exactly a new book, but notwithstanding we're taking the opportunity to speak about it as, uh, I think it's a really important book, um, perhaps a, a landmark book of sorts in, in Thai studies, because it addressed issues and events that I, for one, had really never heard about previously. So perhaps before we get to the book itself, uh, you can say a little bit about how you um, became interested in problems of impunity and state violence and um, um, 
public actions and movements to, to deal with repression in Thailand and Southeast Asia more generally. I became interested in those topics actually through writing this book. I should note that the book and doing the historical work specifically around Northern Thailand in the mid-1970s was what prompted my much broader interest now in questions of impunity and state violence. And it came initially from a very a very simple, basic question, um, which was that at the time that I first started working on the research that led to the book in 2002, um, I had read an article by Tong Chai Chukun where he wrote about the ways in which the 6 October 1976 massacre, which took place on 6 October at Thomasat University in Bangkok, and um, and at least uh, nearly 50 students were killed, hundreds were, at least hundreds were injured, and at least over 3,000 were arrested. I say at least because those are the official numbers released by the government at the time, and many other observers put the numbers much higher. But in his very astute article, Tong Chai argues that the 6 October 1976 massacre continues to be surrounded by silence, ambivalence, and ambiguity. And when I read the article, I thought there had to have been many other instances of violence during that same period that were also surrounded by silence, ambivalence, and ambiguity. And so I started the research that became Revolution Interrupted with the very simple question of what happened in Northern Thailand during that same period? I mean, there wasn't... And at that time, did you already have an interest to do research in Thailand in particular, or was that article by Tong Chai something that you had happened across in the course of work that you were doing um, on other countries or um, amongst more general interests? At that time, I'd already spent close to two years living in Thailand before I started graduate school, working on resonant but actually quite different issues. The first time I went to Thailand was around questions of feminist labor solidarity and um, was interested at the time the student student movements in the United States were quite interested in labor solidarity between students in the US and workers in Southeast Asia. And it seemed to me that the best way to learn about that was to try to be part of it. So I spent time first in Bangkok and then in Chiang Mai working with women Okay, so I'm starting to see some intersections here. So you did already have some some interests in in workers' movements and and people's movements in Southeast Asia and Thailand in particular, and then you came across this article by Tong Chai about an event which is, of course, very well known. Um, but he was raising questions about the implications of the event beyond the event itself, and also the implications for people in other parts of Thailand. Yes. And so then can you sort of talk us into then having read that article, how you actually started going about addressing this question of, well, what happened in Northern Thailand during this time? Yes. And I should, I should make another note, which is that I have chosen both in this book and the research that I've done over the past four or five years looking at impunity in a broad sense, I've chosen explicitly to write historically, and by which I mean to write about how events move move across time from the past into the present. And it's been a very explicit decision, not because I'm not interested in what's happening in the present, but because I often question uh, if the most useful analytic work about the present um, 
might be directed in ways other than academic work. So it seems that as a scholar, what I can do is to use my time and energy to trace what's happened in the past and then use other avenues to think about the present. But so I began, again, with a very simple method. In fact, when I'm fairly certain is not advice I would give to students, for example, who were starting PhD research. I think I did all sorts of things the wrong way. <laughs> uh, and that was that I, I had about two years in which I could work on my dissertation research, which, because Revolution Interrupted was, in its earlier incarnation, was a PhD thesis. And I moved to Chiang Mai, and the first thing I did was spend about six months in the Chiang Mai branch of the Thai National Archives, reading very broadly. And I had no, I had no idea if I would find anything. I thought maybe I would find nothing. And, and that was how the project started, because I found a file about a land tenancy struggle in the 1950s that was riveting and that had me so excited that I often left the archive and read something and then leave the archive to go outside just to make sure that what I was reading was real. And then started to learn about land tenancy. Revolution Interrupted is really a book about land tenancy struggles, but I, I feel like I should note that it, I didn't come to the project knowing that land tenancy would be what was important. I learned about the importance of land tenancy through research and through what I found. Well, let's go to the contents of the book itself now then. Um, you, you speak to this issue of land tenancy, but there are a whole um, range of other layers in the book as well, uh, issues to do with collective action by farmers, issues associated with violence, state violence, state-sponsored violence, other forms of really ambiguous violence, and the political implications of that uh, coming up to the present day, as you've flagged already. Uh, can you set the book up for us and then we'll, we'll have a look at some of the specific chapters. Yes, so so the book in, in very short summary is about how a struggle by farmers and their allies, primarily students, but also lawyers and professors and other interested citizens, how their struggle to force landlords to follow tenancy law led to a tremendous amount of violence. And, and I found, while I was doing the research, I found this incredibly, initially, very perplexing because I couldn't figure out why, why a law was something that had prompted such tremendous extrajudicial violence and intimidation. What, I mean, the, I could understand, for example, at the time, it's the middle of the, not the middle of the height of the Cold War in Thailand. The Communist Party is very active. I can understand if farmers were assassinated because they were attempting to seize the land of landowners. But farmers were assassinated because they were trying to push landowners to follow the law which had been passed in the assembly the year before. And the law um, offered some very basic correctives to a very unjust situation of tenancy. Prior to the passage of the law, it was passed in 1974, the Land Rent Control Act. Prior to the law, there had been no regulation of relations between landlords and tenants. And what this meant for farmers in northern Thailand who had uh, engaged in tenant farming for rice production was that they had no security uh, from one year to the next. They had no stable 
no stable rate of how much rice they would have to pay as rent. And we're just subject to the whims of landowners, to put it very bluntly. And the law offered, again, very basic correctives that just gave tenants rights that they couldn't be evicted uh, without cause, that they wouldn't have to pay incredibly exorbitant rates, and that there would be a mechanism set up to help mediate any disputes that arose in which landlords, farmers, and civil servants had a voice. Prior to that, there had been no, no mechanism. And, and so farmers wanted landowners to follow the law, and landowners didn't want to follow the law. And it prompted this rash of violence. Can, can you set the scene a little bit more for this law passed in, in 74? It comes at a very important moment in modern Thai history, a period of time around which your, your book is centred. And um, if you could just speak to sort of the, the, the circumstances in which the law was passed, and then that I think will also help us to get a, a real sense of what happened to the farmers and why in this moment. Of course, because what happened, the farmers struggle and then what happened to them is one piece of a much broader story. So I'll go back to 1932 and say in 1932 there was a transition from absolute to constitutional monarchy in Thailand. Between 32 and 1973 there were a range of primarily repressive governments, um, particularly from 1958 onwards. In 1958 Field Marshal Soviet Tanarat came into power and with a lot of help from the U.S. government, uh, began a very repressive uh, counterinsurgency campaign that, that targeted any, really anybody with any kind of dissident thinking, not only those who were explicitly communists or socialists. So it was followed in 1963 by Tanam Katika John, and between 1963 and 1973, Tanam Katika John, uh, Papatu Sathien, John, who was Tanam's son, and uh, Prapad was Narong's father-in-law, were at the helm of an incredibly repressive government uh, in which there was very, very, very limited freedom of speech. There was no protest. Uh, but remarkably, during that period of time, there was starting to be a movement questioning dictatorship, questioning authority, partially inspired by global movements. Um, there was May 1968 in Europe was followed closely in Thailand. Uh, events in Latin America were followed closely. And as a result of, of a combination of things, of, of the general public's frustration with dictatorship, as a result of some of the intellectual work that had been done by students and writers and others during that long period of dictatorship, uh, in October of 1973, a small, initially a very small movement of people began calling for a civilian constitution. And, and they really intended it as a small movement for a constitution, but they were quickly arrested. And their arrest prompted what became a massive outpouring of civilian support for an end to dictatorship. And on the 14th of October, 1973, after several days of very heated protests, hundreds of thousands of people in Bangkok, as well as most provinces throughout the country, um, and following clashes between the protesters and the army, the king intervened and requested that the dictators step down. 
And so the three dictators stepped down, and Samya Tamasak, who was at the time the rector of Tamasak University, which for many years, maybe not so much today, but for many years was known as a beacon of progressive thought, became prime minister. That then opened up Thai society and politics to people who hadn't been able to be active before. And so students, farmers, workers, artists, everybody came out to protest and to express, in a sense, decades of decades of desire for participation in politics. And farmers were one of the groups that did so. And, and by November of 1974, there was the first national autonomous farmers organization uh, that had representatives from all over the country and that was formed explicitly to advocate for the interests of poor and working class farmers. And so that then leads into the collective action by farmers that becomes a central part of the story that, that you tell and the organizing that takes place in the north of the country. And the consequences for the people who lead those movements. But um, perhaps before we come to that latter part of the story, can we talk a bit more about the, the steps that, that lead up to the violence directed towards farmer leaders? Um, you, your, your chapter titles are evocative of, of um, beautiful, beautiful uh, and, and powerful images. And perhaps we can... Uh, draw on them to go through some of the aspects of the the story that you're telling. The first chapter, for instance, is breaking the backbone of the nation. Who or what was the backbone and why did it have to be broken? I think it it had to be broken to protect the interests of the elites, but I'll explain why. Uh, The chapter title comes from a phrase, which is that farmers are the backbone of the nation. And an interesting sort of piece of information about this phrase is that it's it's in the dictionary. This is the the definition for backbone includes this phrase <laughs> to give you an idea of how prevalent it is in public life. Um, rice is of course very important to Thai domestic consumption, but also to export. And during between the fifties, sixties, and seventies, it was already that way. So farmers from, so from the end of World War II have this important place in public discourse, but it's always, it's just as the backbone of the nation um, because of their rice production. And they were never, despite this important role in production, until the mid-1970s, they were never taken seriously as political actors. Or perhaps another way to think about it is they were taken seriously as political actors, but were never actually given a voice. And the, the seriousness with which they were taken is marked by how well they were silenced. So during the, the earlier tendency struggle that I mentioned reading about in the Chiang Mai archives, uh, farmers attempted to, to push for an, er, an earlier land tendency law. And it was quickly, quickly quashed by major landowners um, who, who argued that farmers, the farmers who were claiming that they were impoverished and hungry couldn't be either of those. Um, And so that's until the mid-1970s, the way in which the backbone was broken 
was very simple and was perhaps the way in which elites can operate under a dictatorship that favors them, which is that landowners, all, all they had to do was say, the farmers aren't telling the truth. And that was enough to break the backbone of the nation. And yet it's very clear, particularly by the 1970s, that these policies and this refusal to listen to farmers was truly destroying them and leaving them with nothing. They were feeding the nation, but they themselves didn't have any rice to eat. So it's a, a paradoxical situation when you think about the role of a backbone in the human body that, that you know, you can, at some point, uh, it will not stand up to abuse anymore and must be addressed. And so indeed, that's what your book goes on to, to speak to. How, how the backbone does stand up against the attempts to, to break it. Um, and before you, you, we get into the main part of that uh, program, though, there are a couple of other chapters that uh, seem to be speaking to one another in some way. We, we have one chapter, which is from the rice fields to the cities, and then a chapter that follows it, chapter three, from the classrooms to the rice fields. Um, to, to my mind, these chapter titles suggest a movement of of people, but also movements of ideas. So can you say a little bit about what those movements were about and why it was that people were going from rice fields to cities and from classrooms to rice fields? Of course. And they're really, it's really, it's a pair of chapters that work together. And it's about the movement of farmers from, from their villages into the cities to protest, into the city streets to protest, and about the movement of students from university and secondary school classrooms into villages to work with farmers. And I think what's, what's incredibly striking and which reflects the power of the movement that developed, and I think why also part of why it became so threatening, is that in this perhaps magical moment of the mid-1970s, students were learning from farmers rather than the other way around. And during the years of dictatorship before, students from urban universities in Thailand, actually still up till today, they still this still happens. Students from urban universities went to rural areas to build hospitals, build schools, aid in irrigation. But during this moment of collective action, the, the direction of knowledge, actually there wasn't knowledge transfer, there was collective knowledge building. Um, and so the kinds of relationships that were built were one of shared struggle rather than students from a university coming to provide knowledge to farmers. This was students and farmers together were trying to figure out how to struggle with one another. And many of the former student activists who I interviewed talked about uh, how during that period of time, they rarely attended class that, where they really learned was when they were in the villages with farmers, learning how to struggle together, uh, learning learning what life in their own country was like. Similarly, with farmers, um, they made the decision, a very conscious decision, to, to go into the streets and to occupy public space, rather than, for example, to write letters to the local district officers or even to the prime minister, but to literally claim public space as their own and to say, we won't leave in front of the provincial hall until we have action. I think... Those two strands of movement are part of what was behind the power of the movement to unsettle uh, 
received notions at the time, and part of what made the movement so threatening to those in power. Um, while there weren't students who were assassinated for their work with farmers, their actions greatly unsettled elites. Um, Middle-class students aren't supposed to go work in solidarity with farmers in the countryside. These interchanges seem to me to be incredibly important to the story you're telling. So if we can just dwell on them for a few more moments, I'd be interested to know a little bit more about how it was that students went from that sort of the conventional role of being knowledge providers, inverted commas, to people in rural areas and becoming, well, really there's a political consciousness of an, of, an, of an altogether new sort emerging amongst these students. How that happened and why, as, as well as sort of what, what it meant for the struggle that followed. Um. The why it happened, I think, is that it was largely a product of the questioning and critical nature which infused Thai education at the time. And to give you an idea of what happened, uh, and part of it was part of it was that it was a Thai piece of of a global process of questioning. But all of a sudden, in late 1973 and throughout 1974, there were translations of all sorts of major critical writings on education. So, for example, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed was translated into Thai two different times. Uh, there were two, two different translators who wanted to translate. The two translations are quite, are quite different. Um, also, Edward Weimer's School is Dead. Uh, there were also, um, also Althusser and his work on ideological state apparatuses. But it wasn't just that there was translation that was taking place. It was that universities themselves were changing. And when I spoke to people who were professors at the time, they talked about the ways in which they themselves, in a sense, changed how they taught. Uh, so, for example, there was one radical professor at Chiang Mai University who, she was a professor of psychology, but she wore, when she taught during that period, she wore hand-spun cotton and a straw hat, which she wrote protest messages on, and plastic flip-flops. And to imagine someone wearing those clothes rather than then as now sort of what what it's supposed to wear when you're teaching is a silk suit or maybe a polyester suit and high heels. So so that's that was what was taking place. I have another a friend and colleague who was teaching uh, at Tamasat in 1974, and he began his classes every semester by telling the students not to call him Ajahn which is professor, which is the title. Any kind of teacher is automatically given. And once you've been given the title, it's very hard. It's very hard to get rid of it. But he told his students, he wore, he said he wore a pair of Mickey Mouse ears and went into the classroom and said, don't call me Adan now. Wait until the end of the semester and you can decide whether I've earned that title. But so I think that this is the context in which students really began to question where knowledge was located, what their roles in society were. These are powerful and in fact wonderful vignettes. Um, on, on the same token, I'd, I'd like to just go back to the discussion you were also raising about the farmers occupying public spaces. In Thailand today, we see a lot of that taking place um, in the recent decades as well with the Assembly of the Poor. And this is a little bit of a digression, but I'm wondering 
were these initial, were these gatherings in the 1970s unprecedented in the way that they occupied public space? And can we see them as precursors of the types of assemblies and gatherings that have occurred in more recent times? They were certainly unprecedented in recent history. There hadn't been those kinds of protests since the 50s. Before that, I'm not, I'm not positive, and I, so I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that it was absolutely the first time. Um, and that's, that's as much a question of, or a much an, as much an issue of reflecting how much work still remains to be done about, about protest in, in Thai history. I hope there were earlier instances, but I'm not sure. I do think that both that strategy as well as the response to it were precursors to the present. And there's something very, very resonant in the kinds of responses that farmer protests in the 1970s received from governments and other elites and the way those protests are met today. Um, for example, it was there was much evidence in the mid-1970s that the government was very unsettled by having farmers in the streets. And ultimately, I think, in certain protest instances, were willing to agree to demand simply so farmers would leave. Uh, but you see it in our, I saw it in, in editorials that said you know, farmers, farmers shouldn't be in the streets, they should be in the fields. Uh, so there's a very strong, it was very unsettling. And similarly, uh, particularly in 2010, when there were large protests by the red shirt members of the populist, sort of democratic populist nature, uh, there were people who were very unsettled by their presence in the financial and shopping district in Bangkok and again wanted them out of the city streets and into hidden countryside areas. Well, let's go back to the 70s and a bit more about the nature of that, that unsettling presence and the, and the implications of it. Um, in the latter part of your, your book, you concentrate a lot on particular farmer leaders and the communities from whence they come and how they're organizing and the violent reactions that they encounter, um, resulting, as you've already indicated earlier in the interview, in the assassination of numbers of them. Can you talk to the, that, that part of the book and, um, and some details about who these farmer leaders were and what happened to them? Sure. So, so, in fact, violence followed very quickly after farmers organized officially. Um, the, the National Farmers Organization, which was called the National, the Farmers Federation of Thailand, Sahapan Tana Rai, Heng Thai, was established in November of 1974. The Land Rent Control Act, which regulated tenancy, was passed in December of 1974. And by the middle of 1975, farmers started to be assassinated. And the series of events which led to that were that in the first part of 1975, farmers who were part of the Federation went village to village informing the residents about what their rights were under the law. And almost immediately, there was a negative reaction from, from landowners and in some cases from state officials as well. Farmers were accused of being agitators, of being communists, um, and were told not to not to come back to the villages. And again, I, I feel like it's important to stress what they were doing, which was providing information about a law 
which had just been passed by the assembly. I mean, they, they weren't passing out weapons and suggesting that people kill landowners. They were passing out copies of a law and asking them to follow the law. Um, so one of the people who I write about a lot, and part of why I write about him in great depth is that there's enough information about his life to do so. I mean, there's, for a number of the farmer leaders, there's very little information available about who they were and why they did what they did. But in this case, uh, there was a man called Paluang Inha Sibunun, and Paluang is a title in Northern Thai given to um, men who are leaders in, in the community. But Paluang Inha uh, was the president of the Northern Branch of the Farmers Federation, and then that made him a national vice president. And he also, in the recollections of people who knew him and also his family, that that he was, I think what Antonio Gramsci would call an organic intellectual. He had officially finished grade four of primary school, but had read widely and was interested in all sorts of things. He had ordained as a monk for a period of time. He was active uh, as in village politics and village leadership. Um, he'd been part of a theater troupe. And he, for those reasons, he was a natural leader when the when the farmers were, were getting together. And he worked with uh, with progressive lawyers, particularly um, one man, Badat uh, Manut Basada, who became the, the pro bono lawyer for the Farmers Federation, and who his, in recollection, recollections of his life, people wrote about how he was, Badat was based in Bangkok, but he took the bus every weekend to Chiang Mai. And in fact, that often he didn't have to pay for his bus ticket because there was a, you know, a bus operator who was, who was sympathetic to this movement and so let him ride ride for free. So Halong Inha and uh, Badap would go village to village ex- explaining about the law, answering questions about the law. And first, landlords and their, we'll call them their allies within the state apparatus were content to use use strategies like posting flyers saying, you know, farmer activists go away, federation don't come here, etc. Um, and then in Halong Inta's case, he then became aware that he was being followed, that there were there were strange men who were often around when he was around. And yet he didn't stop. Uh, he knew he was he knew he was was being targeted. And yet he continued his work. And several weeks before he was assassinated, he was assassinated on July 30th, 1975. And several weeks before he was assassinated, he gave an interview to a progressive magazine and um, explained that he always, he often tried, not always, he often tried to take his son with him when he went different places because he wanted to show his son what it means to struggle and to to share this with him. But he also didn't anticipate that he would be assassinated. He predicted that at, that at the time that he gave the interview, I think six people had already been assassinated in the North. Uh, but he he thought that the assassinations would die down. He thought there was no chance that this could continue, that this was this was the action of a panicked of a panicked group of people and and they would soon realize that it wouldn't work. Unfortunately, his assessment was incorrect, and he was assassinated. He was assassinated at his home. Uh, his 
he no longer had any land of his own. He'd sold it for his children's schooling. But so he was at home and they, he operated, he and his wife operated a small convenience shop out of the front, the front of their home. And his wife wasn't home that morning. And so he was working at the shop. Two men came on a motorcycle and one of them asked to buy a package of cigarettes and then killed him um, 11 times. And he died. And to give you a sense of the atmosphere at the time, uh, his fun- at his funeral, another farmer leader who came to his funeral was shot on the way home. And I spoke to a person who at the time had been a teacher who was very active with the farm with farmers and students. He was a primary school teacher. And he explained to me that in many cases, very few people went to the funerals because it was unsafe in that atmosphere to go to the funeral, to to mourn for your friend who had just lost their life, became unsafe because it was to point out to the intelligence or the gangsters or whoever was there that you too agreed with them. And then this, this then became a way, a very cynical way in which once there started to be a movement calling for accountability for farmer deaths, for farmer, for the assassinations of farmer leaders, state officials said, look, hardly anyone showed up to the funerals. You claim these are farmer leaders, but if they were such big leaders, why was no one at their funeral? Well, no one was at the funeral because they didn't want to be killed. And the example of the, the leader who was killed on his way home from Parung in Tad's funeral is evidence of, of how true that assessment by other farmers and students was. And, and unfortunately, these were not the, the last killings. In, in total, how many farmer leaders were killed over what period of time? So the, there's a number of, I believe the, the number is 37 that are known to have been killed. And then there's another several more people who disappeared and then others who were injured grievously. I suspect the number is much higher. And the period of time covered this number, which is, I believe it's 45 in total, uh, covers the period of December 1974 until January of 1979. My assessment is that that number is very, very low, that there had to have been many more people who were killed. But then, as now in Thailand, many people often do not feel safe in reporting the assassination or the disappearance of their loved one because they will have often been told, if you say anything about this, we will come back for you or, uh, or we'll harm you in some other way. So, so my guess is that it's, that's a fraction. Uh, it strikes me that throughout what, everything you've been saying about the killings and the consequences for families who use the passive tense, there's no there's no killer, there's no agent, there's no actor present on the other side. And it seems to me that this, in some ways, speaking to the title of the chapter where you concentrate on this aspect of uh, events in in Thailand, um, violence and its denials. So can we go into the denials a bit more and why it is that you're using passive rather than active tense when talking about these killings? Up until the present, no one has ever been prosecuted in relation to these killings. Only in one case was an arrest made. That was, a, the per, that was in relation to Pauline Inta's death, but the person was later released. 
um, and just sort of faded off into the into the ether. Who knows what happened to him? And the reason is that, uh, in a sense, the killers can't be named and arrested. Not because they weren't seen, not because there weren't witnesses. In many of the cases of assassinations of farmer leaders, such as Pablo Intaz, the assassinations were public. These these were assassinations carried out in broad daylight, often in communities. But to to speak out about what one saw would be to invite to invite oneself being targeted. Um, this was one of the questions that I that I came to this research with because there was. If you read the progressive press at the time, there were allegations that, depending on who you were reading, that these assassinations were carried out by various foreign intelligence agencies. Both the CIA and the KGB were accused of assassinating the former leaders. My assessment is that this wasn't this wasn't a matter of, of international intrigue. I mean, I think the question of the role of foreign intelligence entities during this period between 1973 and 1976 and before and after is an important question. But in the case of the farmer leaders, their actions didn't challenge any kind of international interest. Their actions challenged very local interests. And I think similar to the way in which killings have happened in Thailand since then, there's almost an established method by which Local local elites, whether those are landowning capital or other kind of business elites, collude with state officials to to make it possible to assassinate people or disappear people without accountability being possible. When I asked people in the early two thousands about well, what about now? So much time has passed. Maybe the killers could be named today. And without fail, everybody told me no. They said I naive to think that, that that could be possible. And by the time I finished the research and finished writing the book, it took me a long time to understand why. I think the reason why they can't be named, it's not its not just about people's concern that they might go to prison, because of course in Thailand, it's particularly if you have influence, power, and money, it's even if you've killed someone, you may not end up going to prison or serving very much of a sentence. But it's something much deeper. And it's related to what the farmer struggle exposed. And that it comes back to this matter of law and that the farmer leaders were killed because they were trying to force people more powerful than them to follow the law. And if it was exposed, for example, that landlords killed farmers because they didn't want to, to follow the land tenancy law, it's not just that it would Make land and make it clear that landowners didn't believe they were subject to the law, but it would it would challenge the entire uh, I would say dream picture of of rural Thai society, and that is that throughout this period where farmers were trying to push landowners to follow the law, their defensive response was was partially that they didn't want they they wanted to continue having a high profit. But the other is that landowners didn't view themselves as oppressors. They viewed themselves as the benevolent patrons of farmers. So if it was exposed that landowners in collusion with state officials were killing farmers, then they couldn't be benevolent patrons anymore. And I think that fiction, that fiction of, of patronage and of 
of relationship, which covers up so much oppression, had to be retained. And that's why the that's why the assassins can't be can't be named or held to account. There's so many other questions I would like to ask you about this time and these events, but we are running short on time. So what I'd like to do is move forward into the final chapter and then up to the present day. And the, the final chapter is titled um, A State in Disarray. In, in some ways, that sounds like a title that could be used in a book about Thailand today. But uh, what, what did it mean in the mid-1970s? And uh, in particular, the problematic nature of uh, both the state and law to which you've spoken already, if you could unpack those um, aspects of the work. Sure. Uh, so after Paluang Inta was killed, his death touched off a nationwide protest of, of many different sectors of what we would today call civil society, calling for calling for his assassin to be apprehended and for assassinations of farmers to be halted. Uh, instead, a very strange series of events followed. Um, first, as I noted, there was a denial that these were actually leaders. Uh, but then, instead of, instead of arresting assassins of farmers, a group of farmers and students were arrested in relation to a very strange set of charges uh, around action around a, a mine in a local area. And it was clear from the beginning that these were trumped up charges. So then the protests, which had been calling for uh, accountability for assassinations of farmers, then said, okay, we want accountability for assassinations of farmers and release our colleagues who have just been arrested on ridiculous charges. So ultimately, they were arrested. Nobody could figure out why they, nobody would claim, nobody within the government would claim responsibility for arresting them in the first place, which is a little bit strange. Uh, when they were released, then a set of counter-protests began by police. And the police claimed to be furious about the release of, of the activists who had been arrested. And the police use the law as their sort of as the as the center of their of their demands. And they said, you know, this is this release of of these people who have violated the law indicates that we're not living in a time of law which in Thai is good mai, which is literally sort of rule of rule of meaning is one way you could translate it. They said we're living in a time of goat mu, which is a rule of rule of mob, um, rule of the mob. Uh, so, so the police decided to take to the streets uh, to call for the return of, of rule rule by law. They they were not particularly patient uh, in their protesting, and they they also they were protesting in uniform, which caused a lot of consternation with the prime minister who could promote at the time. Because of course, it's fine for any individual citizen to protest, but when you have people and security forces protesting in their uniform, it's a much different much different situation. So the police demanded to meet with the Prime Minister Kukrit, and Kukrit said, I, I would be happy to meet with you, but let's meet at a police station. Uh, and the police refused and also didn't want to wait for the meeting, so went late one evening to his home uh, in Bangkok. It's still, you can actually, it's now a museum. You can go visit his very beautiful home, and there's some lovely lotus ponds. And they trashed his home. They, he, 
was very fond of French alcohol and antiques, and they threw his antiques into the lotus ponds. They broke into his liquor cabinet and took his French alcohol and um, I can't remember if they were French cigarettes or cigars, but took those as well and, uh, and then left. And the next day, and at that point, then the, the police protests began to dissipate. But the police were also never held to account. And Kukrit's response was, was just so telling. He when asked about his damaged furniture, he said, well, I had been looking at those things for so long, I began to grow bored of them. And then he also commented that, well, it's fine that the police did this to me, the prime minister, but they can't do this to ordinary citizens, which is a, a very, you have to sort of stop and think about what that means, because generally, actually, it's sort of reversed. It's that the, the gravest crimes are those committed against those at the helm of the nation. And in this, in this case, there was no question about which police had been involved. I mean, there were photographs. They could have been tracked, and nothing happened to them. And I think that that's an indication of, of the meaning and status of law at that time, and very clear that not just that farmers could be killed for asking people to follow the law, but that, that the law ceased to be a tool that could restrain anybody at that time. And a little over a year later, this magical and remarkable period of open politics ended in Thailand with the 6 October 1976 massacre that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, and that, that, in a sense, is, if one were to place it in relation to law, was an example of sheer lawlessness uh, by both state and state officials and civilians. The, the story of the, the trashing of Prime Minister's house is, it's just, it's a remarkable story. And I think what makes it all the more incredible is that until I read your work, I'd never heard of these events. Um, so the degree to which we, we talk about silences around historical episodes in Thailand and the ambiguities of history, I think magnified and captured very, very powerfully in this particular narrative. Um, and then moving from there into the, the final part of the book, you actually come up to the present day and you talk about the cases of um, attacks on and killings of community leaders in Thailand in the 1990s and 2000s and um, other assassinations such as, for instance, the assassination of the human rights lawyer Samchai Nilapajit. I wonder if you can sort of draw us to a close with some observations on the relevance of the uh, mid-1970s to uh, recent decades. I think the relevance is that the struggle, the struggle for accountability of violence at the hands of both state officials and elites remains very, very strong and unresolved in Thailand. Uh, just to speak briefly about the, the case of the assassination and disappearance of Somchai Nilapai and then also the current moment the current post-coup moment, um, it is, it's remarkable. It's in, in the case of sometimes disappearance, the way in which the law has been manipulated by those in power to ensure that the police officers who are involved in his killing and disappearance have not been held to account is, is striking. And actually, part of why it's so striking is that 
one of the major challenges in that case has been that there's no category of disappearance in Thai law. And so uh, holding the, the police officers to account has, has been very difficult. And I think that's, it's, that's it. It's that there is very little will at the top levels of the state to create both the law and the mechanisms through which to hold people to account. I mean, this is, it's quite stunning. And it's mirrored, I think, in what's happened since the, since the 22 May 2014 coup, and actually in something that just happened this week, which is in 2010, with the protest of the red shirts that I mentioned earlier, there were, at this point, at least 92 people who were killed mostly civilians. There were some state officials in that number, but mostly civilians and over 2,000 injured. And something quite remarkable happened actually in 2012 and 2013, which is that there started to be a process of inquests into those killings. And in all of the cases of civilian killings, the criminal court ruled that civilians had been killed by soldiers. And that's, that in itself is actually is worth noting as a remarkable, a remarkable moment in Thai, modern Thai history. And, but of course it was just stopping at the inquest, nothing, there was not necessarily any further prosecution. And now there's, there was then a question of, well, would there be criminal cases brought? Would prosecutors decide to do anything about those cases? And nothing has happened yet, but there had been a case brought against uh, the and the prime minister and his sort of second in command at the time for their role in those killings. And just this week, the criminal court dismissed that case and said it was out of their jurisdiction. And so I think this is this is another example of, of how difficult it is to hold people to account in Thailand for their role in state violence. While at the same time, again, since the coup, we've seen a number of people who are currently being held even without charge just for investigation in relationship to their exercise of free speech, people who've been accused of insulting the monarchy. So there's something very, very striking, which is that there's not, there's not law to address disappearance. There's no possibility of holding those who have masterminded what is a massacre of people to account. But in the case of, for example, a group of young people who are being held in relation to their performance of a play, there's very strong law to deal with them. And I think just that disparity says a great deal about the crisis of law, accountability, and citizen participation in Thailand. And uh, I, I gather that crisis is in some way part of the research that you've been doing since this book was published. So perhaps um, in closing, you can speak a little bit to what you're doing now and uh, what we can look forward to the next uh, great thing coming from so I largely actually as as unanswered questions that came out of revolution interrupted I have been working for the past few years the past five to six years actually on doing research for a history of impunity for state violence from 1932 until the present and it's a much different kind of project than Revolution Interrupted, not only because Revolution Interrupted really is about eight months in 1975, at least the vast majority of the book. So this is different as opposed to eight months. I'm trying to look at 80 years. And it's a part as much, I'm interested both in the empirical side of 
of instances of of silenced events of of state violence and struggle. But I'm also very interested in what sources one might use to write about impunity, particularly in a case like Thailand where there's been no real transition. Uh, so that's that's what I'm working on. And, and what I've discovered as I've conducted the research and started to write is that mostly what I'm interested in is the relationship between law and extrajudicial violence. And I'm starting to see that in Thailand, the very, very often, law is precisely what facilitates extrajudicial violence. That's a, a fascinating and a pointed observation with which to conclude. And I think rather than trying to interrogate you further about it, <laughs> might be a good point at which to stop and uh, look forward to having you back on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies podcast for the next publication when we can go into that in more detail. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, thank God she get the chin to vote. Hey, thank God she get the chin to vote.